All right. An imperative is a command. Stop. That's an imperative. Do the dishes. Imperative. Mow the grass. And so on. Right. Imperatives in general are fine. Right. We know they serve the public good. We appreciate stop signs. However, when imperatives get personal, we get bothered. If I say, pay attention, you might think that's a little bold, but you're not going to think much about it. If I say, hey, Sally, pay attention, well, Sally's going to get a little bit bothered at that moment. And this is because we do not like being told what to do. Receiving an imperative is a reminder you are not the boss. Now that Joe Biden is president of the United States, he will get many, many requests. But with the exception of those that come from Jill Biden or his grandchildren, he will get very few imperatives. Now, imperatives are also challenging because they come at a cost. The imperative, mow the lawn, if obeyed, is followed by some hard work. And work, generally speaking, is not fun. That's the cost. Very rarely do you hear the imperative, eat ice cream. Now, Christianity is full of imperatives because Christianity teaches that none of us is boss. We all have a maker and are all accountable to him. And if you are a Christian, your maker is your redeemer. You've been bought with a price. And so the earliest Christians and Christians throughout history have happily refer to themselves as slaves of Christ. Jesus began his earthly ministry with these words from Mark chapter 1, verse 15. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. Repent. Turn from your sin. Turn away from it. Let it go. Drop it. Go another way. You're going the wrong way. All right, all that's tied up in repent, right? Believe, trust me, rest in me. Take my words to be words of life. Believe, repent, and believe. The first time I heard the gospel, thankfully I heard the whole gospel, and the whole gospel cannot rightly be presented if it is not including these gospel imperatives. Repent. And believe, that's the, the response to the good news. Own that good news. Receive it. Follow it. Repentance and faith, two sides of the same coin. Gospel imperatives. Now, if you haven't already, turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. I'm calling this series Assurance, Knowing You Know Jesus. And part of assurance is a healthy relationship with Christian imperatives. Following imperatives cannot make you a Christian. No, God makes you a Christian. We'll talk about that today. But your willingness to obey, 
your faithfulness to obey is compelling evidence you are really a Christian. Repentance never saved anyone, but if you are truly saved, you will repent. And not merely the first day of your salvation, but by God's grace, every day of your Christian life. Part of assurance is a joyful and heartfelt embrace of the fact that God is now your master. He's in charge. You're not the boss. And all, all of this is, is fine when God's imperatives happen to line up with our desires. It's easy to obey the command, eat ice cream. But when God says no to what your heart really desires, well, that's another story altogether. It's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called the cost of discipleship. So our passage is 1 John chapter 2, verses 7 to 17. This isn't the outline, but over the course of the message, I'm really going to be drawing your attention to two imperatives one that is pretty explicit, one that's implied. But in, in, the, in, the, in the midst of these imperatives, you see the tenderness and the kindness and the gentleness of John in really shepherding his audience, an audience that they very well may have been uh, members of the church in, in Ephesus. In any event, 1 John chapter 2, let me read our passage beginning in verse 7. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. All right, this passage leads me to ask three questions. And here's the first one. Do you love your family? Do you love your family? I'm not asking about your immediate family. I'm asking about your church family. Do you love your church family? 
the spiritual brothers and sisters that God has given you at Mount Vernon. That's the family I'm talking about. Do you love your family? Do you love the other members of this church? Uh, Non-members, I'm actually, believe it or not, not going to make a personal appeal for you to join this church or any church this morning. Uh, I do that a lot. I'm sure I'll do it later on in 1 John. Uh, You just need to understand that I understand John to be writing to a local church and uh, the, applic- the direct application is to those who are officially part of, if you will, a local church family. So please know that as we go along. But if you're not a member, I think there's going to be a lot in the message to bless you. So feel free to stay. Don't, don't, don't leave. All right. Now, look again at verse 7. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. Now, John reminds them of something they already know, right? Something they they heard really the moment of around the time of their first hearing of the gospel, the beginning of their Christian life. Uh, it, It must be a commandment, though, that some have neglected, maybe even rejected. We'll see this next week, but John seems to be writing in the midst of a church split. The believers who are still in the church, again, perhaps the church in Ephesus, Well, they need to be reminded of what they once heard of this old commandment. It needs to become new to them. It needs to become fresh to them. And so that's why John seems to be going back and forth between, well, an old commandment, but not really an old commandment. It's it's a new commandment. Uh, It needs to be new to you. Look at verse 8. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. I want to hone in on the end of that verse. The darkness is passing away, and the true light is shining. This is the most important truth that John shares in our short passage. The darkness is passing away. The true light is already shining. Jesus is the light. He is the true light, and he he forces the darkness away, He forces the darkness to pass away, just like a flashlight forces the cockroaches to flee in terror, no less. And what was true in John's day is true in our day. Jesus was and he is and he always will be the light. Take a look in your Bibles at the Gospel of John. If you turn left uh, quite a few pages, you'll, you'll run into the Gospel of John. John, who wrote 1 John, also wrote the Gospel of John. We see a lot of similarities. And one of these chief similarities is John bringing up this reality that Jesus is the light. It's the very beginning of John's gospel. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John, different John, John the, John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, that's John the Baptist, was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world, and Jesus is that true light. And only in the the presence 
of Jesus can you see the world clearly. The true light is Jesus. One of my favorite, uh, I mean, C.S. Lewis is well known for so many things. He had so many uh, notable statements. One of the most notable was a statement he made about Christianity. He said something like, I don't really believe in Christianity because I can see it. I believe in Christianity because I can see everything else clearly in light of it. Now, you and I didn't walk on this earth when we could see with our eyeballs Jesus Christ. But I think the same thing that Lewis said about Christianity is something perhaps that we could say about Jesus as the true light. I don't believe in Jesus so much because I can see him, but because I can see everything clearly in light of him. Without Jesus, I am blind. Now, where did, where did John get this image of Jesus as the light? Well, he got it from Jesus. For example, John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. We can, we can walk in the light because Jesus, the Word, is the lamp unto our feet. Right, so to, to live without Christ is to walk in darkness. It's to be blind. Jesus is the light. Now, which means for Christians that you don't need to despair about current events. You don't need to lose heart when the world takes a turn that you don't like. Plagues come and plagues go. Tyrants rise and they fall. Economies expand and collapse. But so long as there are churches preaching the glorious news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you can be absolutely sure that the darkness is passing away and the true light, which was already shining in John's day, keeps on shining today in Syria, in Pakistan, in Russia, in America, all around the world. The darkness is passing away, and the true light is shining regardless of what's on CNN or Fox News. Why? Because the gospel is being preached, and where the gospel is preached, God's Word will have its intended and powerful effect. Jesus is the good news. He is the light. He came so that we might be able to see sin for what it really is. I'm always struck when we have the confession of sin in, in, in the morning. We begin every service with the confession of sin. And at various different points in our lives, we all fall into one of these two camps. One is, how long is this confession going to be? And the other is, I didn't have enough time to share all my sin. You know, when Jesus is the light, you just begin seeing yourself for who you really are. And it's just, you know, not, not, not a pretty sight. We, we, we begin to see the judgment that we deserve. We, we recognize that Jesus is the perfect Son of God, like who came to the earth and lived a, a perfect life. Who, who died in the place of sinners and rose from the dead for the justification of all those who would, Mark 1.15, repent and believe the good news. How do you see that? You see it in the light of who Jesus is and of what he's done. So wherever the church is alive, and that is 
on earth. The darkness is passing, and the true light is shining. Now, that sounds nice, you say. Very nice. Uh, what a pleasant thought. But Aaron, I don't see this light. I mean, it's, I see lights. It's a lovely building. The windows are nice. The sun is coming, and I see that. But I don't see what you're talking about. Well, I would refer you to 1 John chapter 2, verse 9. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with 1 John, but if you're not familiar with this letter, I would argue this is a strange and unexpected turn that he makes. But I want you to let these words sink in about hating your brother or loving your brother. They aren't complicated to understand. The love you have for your brothers and sisters in Christ is evidence you are walking in light. John is applying Jesus' words from John 13, verse 34, when Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love my disciples. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. It's not a perfect analogy, but I know that a dimmer switch doesn't turn the light on, but it does make the light shine brighter. When you love your brothers and sisters in Christ, the light of Jesus shines brighter in the world. We walk in the light by loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. Therefore, the church is to be a powerful witness of the reality of Jesus. The love we have for one another in the church, a love which finds its source in Jesus himself, this is the love that conquers conflict, that defeats loneliness, that bridges ethnic, racial, socioeconomic, and political divides. It's a love that binds us together as one family, one faith, one spirit, one baptism. And I fear it is easy for us to forget what the church is. Right? We, we are prone to turn the church to, into an event to attend or a program to staff or a buffet to choose from, or even a show to stream. But nothing I just said requires love. To walk in the light is not to attend an event or flip on a television. To walk in the light is to love your brothers and sisters, to put their needs before your own, to forgive them when they sin against you, to overlook their sin whenever you can. And when you feel like you've got nothing else to give, to give for their good. If you're not willing to do this, you're not merely not loving your brothers and sisters, 
According to John, you're hating them. And whoever hates his brother is blind and walks in the darkness. Back in June of 2008, when I came to Mount Vernon, I met a brother faithfully serving in just so many different ways at, at the church. Um, he ministered as a deacon uh, on the, the leadership team, and we had a leadership team uh, back then, uh, taught a Sunday school class. Uh, there was a season when um, we really, a lot of stuff was going on in elementary and in preschool, and uh, he helped lead the uh, elementary wing for a number of months. So there was a lot going on. These are my early years. And during this particular time, our relationship began to fray. Uh, I, as maybe as you could imagine, I brought with me a lot of change to an established church. Uh, some of it intentional, honestly, some of it not intentional. And I have since learned that sometimes just being a different person brings its own kind of change to a congregation. And yet there was a lot of change that, no, I actually brought, I wanted to bring, and uh, I didn't always bring it very well. And so there were times when my running of the church could be sacrificed. Well, it wasn't sacrificed. Shepherding the church could be sacrificed at the altar of running the church. And so we began to have conflict. Now, I fear that many of you are wondering, is he talking about me? <laughs> well, one day over lunch, it became clear to me that he was prepared to leave the church. He didn't say he was going to leave, but it, it, it wasn't the best lunch, let's say, that I've had in my 12 years here. It was clear that he'd been hurt, uh, but he didn't leave. Uh, he chose to love me in my weakness, to overlook many of my sins. Uh, he would be the first to say, you know, Aaron, it wasn't, you know, all your fault. But at the end of the day, I know that he chose to stay and to press into the church and in no small degree to press into me. And he began to care for me and love me as both his pastor and as a brother. Now, I bring this up because many of you know Pat Knowles as the elder chair. And uh, if you see us relate, we have a wonderful relationship. It wasn't always wonderful. Um, and it was easier for him to go than, than for me to go. And yet he didn't go. He stayed. And he had a choice whether or not, I don't know if these particular verses were verses on his mind when he was, when he was processing what to do, but he had a choice to make. Is he going to live out these verses to love and serve me, his brother, or was he not going to do that? Was he going to commit himself to love and serve this church that the world, that the world might be able to look at Mount Vernon and see something of the Savior? Now, I share all this with Pat's permission, of course, because this is what it looks like to love your neighbor. And I think a lot of us come to church assuming relationships are good and perhaps not aware that basically it's no secret that if you stay in one place long enough, you're going to have a kind of relational conflict that makes you want to run away. And I don't mean to say this to say there's never good, there's never, it's never uh, wrong to leave a church. I mean, I like to say this isn't Saudi Arabia. 
You know, there are other good churches in our area. But I do wonder if one of the reasons the church in America is so emaciated, and I'm not going to try to defend that right now, but if one of the reasons the church overall is so weak is because we're so accustomed to leaving when it gets hard instead of pressing in, recognizing there's times to forgive sins, there's times to overlook sins, and there is always time to love your brothers and your sisters well. And if you can't figure out how to do that and your evangelism is suffering, it may be because the very basic thing we do as evangelists, which is both sharing the gospel with our words and loving our brothers and sisters with our actions, well, we're failing to do the latter. And how is the church going to be strong if we aren't obeying these most basic of commands? these imperatives, to love our brothers and sisters. So, do you love your family, your church family? When you harbor bitterness, when you refuse to look over an offense, when you fail to pursue reconciliation, when you never offer a word of encouragement, when you walk around offended and upset until you can't take it anymore, when you leave with no word of explanation, you are hating your brothers and sisters. And John says you are walking in darkness. Love your family. Trust that God and his providence has surrounded you with men and women that you need in order to grow in holiness. That's the point there of, of verse 10. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. Right? Loving relationships within the body of Christ will keep you and your brother from stumbling, from falling into sin, from walking in darkness. This is God's design. So, brothers and sisters, that's the not-so-implied imperative. It's explicit. Love your church family. Right? Here's the second question. Second, are you discouraged? Are you discouraged? Look at verse 12. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you children because you know the father. I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Now what John does here is he changes topics for just a moment. In chapter 2, verse 1, we read, little children. And there, it's clearly a reference to the entire church. It's his audience. And so it's safe to assume that in verse 12, when he says, little children, once again, he's referring to the church as a whole. Now, if that's true, it means that fathers and young men in the section I just read, is probably not a reference to actual fathers and actual young men, but simply older and younger members of the church. And you need to remember that in the ancient world and throughout most of history, practically all of history, masculine pronouns and nouns could be gender neutral. In other words, referring to either men or women. So think of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. You know, it doesn't mean there are no women in Philadelphia. It's just how language has been used throughout most of history. So in this aside, John addresses the church as a whole 
little children. And he recognizes that some of these children are older, and so in a culturally appropriate way, he identifies them as fathers. He recognizes that some in the church are younger, and in what would have been a culturally appropriate way, he recognizes them as young men, not to imply he's addressing only fathers or only men or males. Now, having said that, so what's John up to? What's he doing here in this part of the letter? Remember the big picture. John is presenting us with imperatives. And if we don't keep these imperatives, it's going to be really bad, right? There's no good reason to think we're Christians. 1 John 2, 3, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. 2, 9, whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. We're about to get to verse 15. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Right? That's a lot to take in. If you're listening carefully to me, that's a lot to take in. It's easy to assume that because you struggle so much, well, you, you must not be a Christian. And so in the midst of all that, you've got these verses, 12, 13, and 14, where, where John takes a break from all the imperatives, and he, he reminds us where the Christian life begins. With God, our assurance is never rooted in, in what we do, but in what Christ did. John is so tender, gentle, kind to remind us of who we are, sinners forgiven. This is verse 12. Sinners forgiven for the sake of the name of Jesus. Saints washed in the blood of the Lamb. So First John is less of a whip to your back demanding that you run faster. And it's more of a gentle arm around your shoulder, helping you to cross the finish line. These verses in particular are intended to be a deep, sweet, glorious encouragement to God's people and specifically to the members of the church John served and by extension, a sweet, glorious encouragement to the members of Mount Vernon Baptist Church. If you're a member of this church, you are known Right? You've shared your testimony, which is not always easy. You've opened up your life to others. You've come under the authority of elders. And all this is God's plan. It's part of his grace so that there are people in your life who can affirm that they see God's grace in you and who can state unequivocally, you have been forgiven for the sake of the name of Jesus. What an encouragement it is to be part of a body where that can be said about you. Now, in verses, in verse 12 and at the end of 13, John addresses again every church member. He says, your sins are forgiven for the sake of the name of Jesus. Right, church, because of Christ's work, you've been adopted into his family. In verses 13 and 14, he tells the fathers, right, the older men and women, he says, you know him who is from the beginning. In other words, you know Christ. Now, if you're older, you probably know a lot of things. If you're older, well, you know how to master school, been there, done that, right? You may have navigated a family, maybe even a career. You may even have figured out retirement. You can say, I know retirement. But the most important thing is knowing Christ himself. And he encourages the older saints. You know Jesus, more important than anything. 
Verses 13 and 14, they speak to the young men, again, the, the younger members of the congregation. By the way, the first century apparently had no category for middle-aged. Right? You were either older or younger, no in-between. Don't know how to apply that, just figure something out with that. But young believers need to know they're strong and the Word of God abides in them. And twice he tells them they've overcome the evil one. By the way, Jesus said that the devil is the ruler of this world, John 12, 31. The devil's mission is to deceive us, it's to point us away from Christ, it's to make us think we don't need him, right? The devil, I know the devil hates the whole service. I think he really hates that confession of sin time. He just does not want you to think that you've done anything that makes you think, to make you think you need Jesus. The devil doesn't care if you're poor or if you're rich, so long as you're independent, so long as you're proud. He doesn't care how much money is in your bank account. Now, on the cross, Jesus defeated the devil. Hebrews 2.14, Jesus destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And if you're in Christ, and if you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to you, therefore the devil has no power over you. In that sense, you've been freed. You've been freed from his dominion. In that sense, you've overcome in Christ the evil one, the devil. You're free from his lies. You don't have to believe what he wants you to believe. Now, I know we don't like talking about the devil. It doesn't sound very modern. But the devil is at work prowling around, looking for a way to influence you. He wants you to be discouraged. He wants you to doubt the power of Christ to help you. He wants you to feel crushed by your sin. And focusing on the younger members of the church, John says, don't lose heart, young Christian. Don't lose heart, young person. You have overcome the evil one. Now, why does John do this? Why does he address these different members, if you will, of the congregation. Well, because sometimes we need specific encouragement, right, tailored to where we are in life, right? In the New Testament, there are different categories of people that are often addressed, sometimes Jews, sometimes Gentiles, right? Sometimes men, sometimes women, sometimes barbarians and Scythians and slaves and free, right? sometimes the old and sometimes the young. And the point is that the Holy Spirit sees you, I was leaving the hospital the other day, and there were these signs that were intended to be encouraging, uh, and they were just on the side. It was like, you are seen. Is this this sign telling me I'm seen? Like, well, how does that sign know I'm seen? Is there a camera? Like, who's watching me? What are you talking about? This is, this is evidence of living in a Judeo-Christian culture. They've simply borrowed theological realities, and then they're taping them everywhere as if they make sense, and they don't. No one on that sign sees me. But, but John says to the fathers, to the, you're seen. I see you. I know that you've got some unique peculiarities that need to be addressed. And I, I see you. You know, if you're young in the church, you're seen. And so it's a sweet thing that when you go to the Bible, like it addresses you where you are. And in our passage, those who are older, they need to hear that they, they know Jesus. They need to hear that. They need to hear that even, even, as, even as they think they know so much, we may think we know a lot, but nothing we've learned in all of our years is more important than what we learned the first time we heard the gospel. 
Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And if you know him, that's the most important bit of knowledge you ever need. And we know him, he says. And that knowledge is more important than anything. So my older brothers and sisters, and again, you're just going to have to decide which camp you're in. You, you, get, you get a pick, old or young, right? My older brothers and sisters, are you spending your days knowing him better? Pursuing him with greater passion and zeal. You will be of no use to the young if you don't realize the most important bit of knowledge you have to pass along is knowledge of Jesus. Now, in our passage, those of us who are younger need to hear that we are strong. So, young ones, you may feel weak today. You may feel besieged by your sin. You may feel like, you may wonder, am I ever going to live a Christian life that could be pointed to as an example? Oh, my goodness. And John tells you that by God's grace, you are strong. The, the, the Word of God abides in you. Good grief. You've overcome the evil one. So don't lose heart. Yeah, the years ahead of you are going to be hard. They're going to be filled with temptations and trials. It's going, to be, it's going to be hard. But look to Christ. He's your Savior. He's your strength. He's your shield. So there are imperatives in the Christian life. There are commands you must obey if you're a Christian. But when you're discouraged, church, when you're discouraged, church, look at what God has done. Look at the forgiveness he has given. Look at the Savior he has provided. Look at the Father who has adopted you into his family. And look at the strength that he gives you through his word. Your assurance is never found in your performance. Your assurance is found in Christ alone. So I asked you, do you love your family, your church family? That's evidence. You're walking in the light. I asked you if you're encouraged. Encouragement comes from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit masterfully then prepares us for the, the final question. Third, do you love the Father? Do you love the Father? Look at verse 15. Having heaped encouragement on this church that he knew, John writes, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now, the imperative in verses 7 through 11, I take to be fairly explicit right? Love your family, love your church family, and all that's wrapped up in not hating your brother, but loving your brother. Now, there is an explicit imperative in this paragraph as well. It's a, it's a negative imperative. Do not love the world. But as you can tell by the question I'm asking is, I'm, 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 I'm teasing out the implied imperative. And it's, you see there at the end of verse, verse 15, if anyone loves the world, the love of, I take that to be the love for the Father, is not in him. If you're loving the world, you aren't loving the Father. So the implied imperative then is love the Father. Love the Father. Love the Father. And so as I speak right now, there is a war that is being waged. And I'm not talking about the political war between red and blue. 
Uh, I'm not talking about an economic war like between the U.S. and China or a military war between Hezbollah and Israel. Uh, I'm talking about a spiritual war for your love is being waged right now. It takes place in the heart of every Christian. And Paul described this war in Galatians 5.17 when he wrote, For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other. Two sets of desires, fleshly, sinful desires, spiritual, godly desires in the heart of every believer, opposed to one another, fighting one another. And, And John is describing the same war in our verses. Your love for the world, Christian, is at risk of choking out your love for the Father. So every day, you've got to decide, who am I going to love more? I'm not saying there should be any love of the world in you. I'm simply acknowledging that as still a sinful human being, there are sinful desires in all of our hearts. And so we've got to decide, who are we going to love? Are you going to love the Father more? Are you going to love him better? Are you going to commit to loving him forever? It's a battle of the heart. Now, let me use a different illustration. You move into a home. It's 50 years old, and it needs a fair bit of upkeep. You're glad to be in the house. You enjoy the comfort that this house provides you. You do not like the maintenance that this house demands. You do not want to scoop out leaves from the gutter. You do not want to replace broken shingles. You do not want to change the filter on an aging furnace. But if you don't do these things, eventually the home is going to fall apart. I mean, eventually. Eventually it will get so run down you cannot live there. And so if you love the house and want to stay there, you got to get to work. You have to do the hard work of caring for it. But that means choosing what to do on Saturday. You can care for your comfort. You can care for your house. Can't care for both at the same time. You've got to choose. The Christian life is like this. You you can't love the world and love the Father. You have to choose. What does it mean to love the world? Let me quickly say what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean you should stop enjoying trips to the Grand Canyon or hiking along the Chattahoochee or spending a day in the park. Do not love the world doesn't mean you can't enjoy your job or your family. Remember the sermon series in Ecclesiastes. I know I was a little taken aback by all the passages in Ecclesiastes where that old preacher told us to enjoy life. Life is short, he says. Enjoy it. Enjoy the world that God made. You can enjoy the world without loving the world. So whatever it means by do not love the world, it doesn't mean you can't enjoy the good gifts that God has given you. So what does John mean? Let me put it this way. You love the world when you care more about what the world can give you than the God who saved you. It's pretty simple. You love the world when you care more about what the world can give you than the God who saved you. Go back to that old house. You may love what the house can give you, and there is nothing wrong with taking a nap on a rainy day under the security of that roof. But if all you care about is yourself, If all you care about is what the house can give you, you'll never give back to the house. And eventually the shingles will fail, the wood will rot, 
and uh, water will fall on your face while you're napping. There is a battle taking place in your heart right now, and there are decisions that you have to make every moment of every day. Will you care more about what you can get out of this world, or will you care more about the God who made the world and saved you? The war is hard because verse 16 is real. The desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life are real. They are strong. They want to win. And the desires of the flesh do win when we put what feels good above what we know is good. Pause for a moment. When was the last time you put what felt good before what you knew to be good and right. We all have instincts for pleasure. That's natural. That's good. Throughout history, that word flesh has often been associated with sexual desire. Sex is good. It is not dirty. It is not bad. But the desires of the flesh lead us to abuse these instincts. We take sex out of marriage. We let our feelings define how we are to see and use our body and how we are to see and use the bodies of others. Instead of trusting God's good word and his good plan, our lives contradict God's word. The desires of the eyes win when we covet what we cannot have. We lust after what we cannot afford. We tell ourselves we need more clothes, we need more toys, we need more respect, we need a bigger house, and the desires of our eyes preach to us. I preach to you every week. The desires of your eyes are preaching sermons to you every single day, telling you, pleading with you to be discontent with what you have, pleading with you to want more, just a little more. The pride of life wins when you boast in what you have. Right? Some translations say the pride in possessions. Right? The, the proud find comfort and security in what they own and joy in the finances they have. And when your satisfaction is found in the stuff you have, well, God's far from you. You don't have him. You don't know him. Right? These are the the enemies lurking in all of our hearts. And verse 16 is so clear. If anyone loves the world, and if anyone lets the desires of the flesh or the desires of the eyes or the pride of life, if you let that win, the love of the Father is not in you. You don't really love God. When you love the world, you live as if God does not exist. You live as if you are all that matters. You live as if you're the king of your soul, the captain of your fate, you live as if God has no right to declare, to dictate how you ought to live. If you love the world, you cannot stand it when God makes imperatives and applies them to you. When God issues commands, commands that run against the grain of your heart's desires. And here's John's point. If this is you, you don't love God. 
So as kind and gentle and tender as John can be, encouraging you that you've been forgiven for the sake of Jesus' name, he can be just as bold and just as forceful and say, hey, friends, hey, look here. Look here, don't love the world. If you love the world, everything I just said about you is just not true for you. Be careful. Don't love the world. If this is you, you don't love God. Not really, not truly. I think it was Pastor Tim Keller in New York who said that if the God you claim to worship never contradicts you, you don't really believe in him. If the God that you claim to worship never says no to your desires in a way that captures your attention and changes your life, then you don't really know or love the true God who by very definition is good, knows what's good for you, and if he really is a good God, is going to seek for you to follow after him. If you can't accept that God will regularly say no to your desires, the God you think you worship is nothing more than a figment of your imagination. If you can't accept that God often says no to you, no to your desires, no to your feelings, no to your decisions, if you can't accept this, it's because you don't really know God. To you, he's little more than a genie tucked away in the bottle of your own self-interest. But he's not the creator God, the holy God, the redeemer God, the all-satisfying God, the God worthy of all your love. If, you can't, if your God can't say no to you, then you don't really love him. You're just using him. So here's the imperative then. Love the Father. Love him. Don't just love the world. Don't love the world. Love him. Now, you may be thinking, all right, I hear that. Uh, I want to do that. I, I don't know where to start. So let me end this morning with where you need to start by asking you to do two not-so-simple things. Two not-so-simple things, both, I think, from our text. First, see the world as it really is. See the world as it really is. Verse 17, and the world is passing away along with its desires. Remember Ecclesiastes? This world, just a vapor, flash in the pan, a sandcastle that is very quickly going to be washed away by the tide. As great as this world is, and it's great in so many different ways, the Grand Canyon is not going to last forever. Mount Everest is not going to last forever. Your job is not going to last forever. Well, you're probably happy about that. So much, though, that you're relying upon. The Bible just says, hey, it's going to be dust. It's passing away. And so all your confidence, like in Macy's, not a good idea. It's going to go the way of Sears eventually. Don't put your hope there. It's passing away. And when you see the world for what it really is, you'll finally be able to understand why Christians pay so much attention to the next world, the eternal world, the new heavens and the new earth. It's not because we don't appreciate what God made here. It's just we know that this world as it is right now is not going to last. We're waiting for the world to come. See the world as it really is. That's the first thing. I don't know how easy, how easy it is to do because just look around. I mean, even our church building is amazing. It's going to be dust. It's the congregation that matters. All right, 
See the world as it really is. Here's the second thing. See God as he really is. See God as he really is. Look again at verse 17. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now, admittedly, here, John is telling you to fight, to do God's will. Those who love God, they honor him, they obey him. But how is it that those who do God's will abide forever? What's going on there? And I think the answer to that question has to be found in verse 12. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. If you are a Christian, it's not because you did God's will. It's because God willed his son to die for you, that you might be forgiven. And who gets the glory? The son who died. Thus John writes, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. What an amazing Savior dying for sinners like us. If you're a Christian, it's not because you're so great. It's because the greatest man who ever lived suffered and bled and died for you, that you might live forever. If you're a Christian, it's not because you raise yourself up to be something better. It's because the Father raised the Son from the dead to everlasting life and made a way for you to share in that everlasting life, to love the Father more than you love the world, to fill you with the Holy Spirit so that you can now actually obey the imperatives we find in 1 John, do the will of God, and abide forever. It's all because of God, not because of us. See God as he really is the Savior of all who seek them. Most of us do not like being told what to do. I count myself in that category. If you are here this morning and you are not a Christian, I just give you the words of Jesus. Repent and believe. Trust in him. Follow him. It is your only hope. Christian, my brothers and sisters, who I hope you warmly receive the encouragement of John in verses 12 through 14. I think you should. I love you. I love this church. Uh, you're so much godlier in so many ways than I am. I learn from you. I grow being in your presence. Be encouraged by verses 12 through 14. Be challenged by verses 7 through 11 and by verses 15 through 17, be challenged to love one another more and better and to love the Father most of all, recognizing it's not just that you must obey him, but it's by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit you can obey him, and there's no better way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you for both the rebuke that we find in Scripture and the warmth and the tenderness and the reality that the Bible so often is an arm around our shoulders guiding us to the finish line. So, Father, I pray that all the listeners would attend to this sermon the way they ought to attend to this sermon. For those redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, might they be encouraged by what you've done and heartened to follow you more for those who've never repented and believed, might they, for the very first time, see you for who you really are and even see this world for what it really is passing away. And might they put 
their confidence in Christ today. It's in his glorious name that we pray. Amen.